Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that thinks Chris can get even wilder. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working <laughs> as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. I can't tell whether or not that intro was was really quite funny and witty or quite dead. <laughs> I enjoyed it nonetheless. It's one of the um, two. Good, the good news is that I, I, uh, I'm I well versed in both those things. Um, we've got a lot to talk about this week. Um, beyond the crazy amount of, of good and exciting and goal-heavy football that's happened over the last four or five days, um, there's also a bunch of stuff that's happened outside of football, such as TV rights and protesting and things like that. Um, we're going to start with the TV rights and hopefully get into talk to um, talk about um, definitely not two, uh, some of the more exciting matches that happened this weekend and as recently as this evening. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to start with the Premier League TV rights because it is something that a lot of people will have seen pop up on their you know, Sky News app or their you know, Twitter or, or whatever else and sort of gone, oh, OK, well, there's a new TV rights deal for the Premier League. You know, Why does that matter? Um, and it matters for a couple of reasons. It matters if you are someone who lives in the UK uh, for a number of reasons to do with 3pm uh, blackouts and to do with uh, game attendance and to do uh, with uh, the amount of games you're available to watch on UK TV. But it also matters for Premier League fans who maybe don't live in the, uh, in the UK because... Uh, of the amount of money and what that could potentially mean uh, for the revenue and, and the increase in revenue uh, that is coming into the English game and, and by proxy the global game of football as you know the English game is, is the most moneyed uh, and it tends to be the one that sets the trends or indeed uh, you know at times it may mean that you know one's going down and another is rising. Um, this new TV rights deal is uh, for 25, 26 through to 28, 29. Um, and it's a total deal valued at £6.7 billion over four years. Um, the way that these rights work is that there are five packages is what they call them to sell uh, and Sky Sports have taken four of the five packages they've increased their coverage by 70% and will now be showing at least 215 games per season uh, the remaining 52 available games in the remaining package uh, will be broadcast on TNT Sports which is what was formerly uh, BT Sports What's interesting about this, well, there's a few different interesting things about this, is uh, in the first instance, the overall percentage of games broadcasted is going to be up from 52% to 71%. So it's something that we've talked about and that, you know, generally people have talked about a lot over the last few years, that a lot of the games uh, that you might want to watch are not broadcast and you're unavailable to to see them if you're someone who lives in the UK. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to be talking about, for example, Liverpool 4, Fulham 3, an absolutely fantastic game uh, and you know, brilliant for all the goals, brilliant for all the, the, the play that happened and fantastic in the wider narrative of the league, but a game that was not available to watch for fans who were in the UK. So mm. that's something that people, I would argue personally, rightfully criticise a lot of the time and something that may be remedied uh, by this increase from 52% to 71%. Um, there'll be a lot more of these sort of new slot games, Sunday night, there'll be concurrent games. Basically, every single game outside of that Saturday 3pm slot is now going to be broadcast, which means over 100 additional games uh, starting from that 25-26 season to 28-29. So on the face of it, when you look at just the surface facts, it seems like it's a real uh, you know, innovation for fans. The one thing, of course, I haven't mentioned there, but if you read between the lines, you might have picked up. 
with Sky Sports picking up four of the five packages uh, and TNT Sports picking up the remaining package, uh, it does, of course, mean that Amazon, who have been uh, a little bit of a, a, an entrant into the game and are, of course, broadcasting uh, the games that are on this week, it's the 5th of December as we speak, uh, and some later in December, the Boxing Day games, uh, are now no longer going to be broadcasting any Premier League games. The same goes for other streamers like DAZN. Um, so it's a little bit of a retreat from the dabbling in the world of streaming that the Premier League has done for the last four Four seasons, uh, this being the fifth. Um, on the face of it, your thoughts on this deal? I mean, I've, I've dumped a lot of information there. I'm going to throw it to you to just give your surface thoughts on, on this deal and what you think it might mean for fans moving forwards. Sure. I mean, I think um, there's there's the there's the immediate takes, and then there's the the potentially interesting things to to watch out for. The immediate takes are that hopefully the more games you can see on one platform, the easier it will be for fans everywhere. It's the obvious obvious point to make. Um, we are a far cry from, um, you know, the lockdown saga of... Do you remember when we worked it out and it was like over a £1,000 to watch all of the games on TV per season because, like, the pay-per-views of £15 per game at times um, and the four or five different subscriptions that you had to get. Um, we've moved on from that, and I think that's very healthy and I'm happy for it. Um, I, I do find it funny that Amazon has dropped out. Obviously, you know, they as a as a massive company are famous for their kind of aggressive entry into markets and then slowly taking over them. Um, I, I, I find it funny that it seems like Premier League TV rights was too too hostile a market for even them. Um, <laughs> you know, was was Premier League TV too too toxic for Amazon? Um but uh, yeah, on the surface of it, it looks like it's going to make things more affordable for the everyday fan. Um, the interesting thing as well, which um, I can't remember if you touched on or not, but it is just that um, it's really not a lot of money that they've paid to get these rights more than um, the, the per season than the previous deal. And that obviously you know, throws up questions around whether or not there is a a limit to the growth that we have been seeing practically year on year in terms of revenue and viewers and sponsorships and all of these things. And I personally have, have thought that football was one big bubble financially for, for a while. Um, but really it was always going to take you know, a, a real significant revolt from fans to ever have any sort of um, like soon upcoming um, change to the amount that everything costs and how big football was growing as a global sport. Um, but it, it is interesting to note that uh, it, it's not a massive amount more than the last time these rights were negotiated. And I don't know whether or not that's because they do see the fact that there there's a ceiling at some point in the future for how much the Premier League and, and English football can grow on the global stage, or if it's because, you know, it's maybe a reaction to the the numbers dropping post lockdown. Um, yeah, I think the, the numbers peaked, the, the viewership peaked during lockdown when we all had nothing else to do. And they've dropped off in the year or two since. So it might well also be a reaction to that. I don't know. But but those are my two things. Seems cheaper. And also interesting to note that um, there seems to be a cap on, on growth. 
Yeah, and, and just to those two points, I mean, the first is it's a slightly shorter point and the second is a bit more of a, I've got some interesting numbers here, but on the face of it, it does seem cheaper. I mean, I think a lot of people are suspecting that Sky Sports and TNT are going to turn around and hike up their prices for from the uh, from the 25-26 season, which uh, wouldn't be that surprising. They'll go, we're showing They've more They've got games. to build the goodwill first, don't they? That's, <laughs> that's oh, the yeah, deal, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're <laughs> don't you get for... a couple of good competition years first? Yeah. Or is this, do you think this is GG? Well, as you mentioned with Project Big Picture, um, you know, Sky Sports and all the other broadcasters known for considering the fans first. Um, but the interesting thing there, I mean, mm. you mentioned the deal and, and the sort of the value. So a, a couple of hard numbers. Interestingly, this deal, the 6.7 billion, is only up uh, around 43 million pounds per season uh, from the 2022 to 25 deal. Uh, in fact, per Grace on Football, who sort of worked this out, the per game cost, and this is partly due to the uh, the amount of games but the per game cost of the new premier league deal works out to about 6.2 million pounds per game the per game cost of the old deal which ran 22 2022 to 25 but was agreed in 2018 was 8.5 million so 8.5 million versus 6.2 million per game if you take it even further and adjust that fee from eight, uh, 2018 for inflation that would be 10.6 million which is almost double the per game cost which leads you to potentially believe, I mean, you, it's funny you mentioned that you've been talking about it for a long time. I, I distinctly remember a conversation you and I had about this maybe 10 or 11 years ago uh, when we were two young lads chopping it up um, at pubs that we weren't supposed to be drinking at. And just looking at, you know, these sort of summer, I've, I've aged ourselves there, um, the sort of the summers that kept coming and the, the prices that kept going up. And I think we were, maybe it was sort of Gareth Bale or someone had just transferred and we were going, this money's ridiculous. And we've had year on year of, of more and more transfers and more and more money. And it seems like maybe we are going to a point now where a big part of the reason why the Premier League are able to, uh, you know, spend so much money is the TV money and also the TV money itself. Uh, you know, if the TV money is valued highly, so too are the sponsorship contracts because people go, well, hey, if this is how much the broadcasting, uh, you know, is valued at, clearly there are a lot of eyes. So so clearly we're going to put a load of money into sponsoring things, um, whether that's shirts or whether that's advertising hoardings or whatever. So if this is to suggest that the rights of the Premier League TV have stalled or decreased it could mean that the the value of the money going into football at large has either stalled or decreased because as I mentioned the Premier League is the big dog uh, and we're already seeing I mean there are some examples elsewhere um, you know Italy's Serie A have just agreed a, a new deal um, which was uh, quite a bit less uh, I think it was about 900 million per season uh, over the course of seven seasons as compared to the Premier League's 1.3 and a half billion per season uh, correct me on my maths if I'm wrong there any uh, nerds in the in the chat um, and, and obviously in Ligue 1 uh, they are still having their rights out to tender because they haven't been able to get a bid to, to sort of match that so I think we might be finding ourselves it, it's one of those things that there are always those signs just before a big bubble bursting and, and people sometimes gloss over them and, you know, say everything's hunky-dory. But if, if you do a little bit of scratching on the surface, you can see what's underneath. And so the fact that this deal has risen by so little and in actual real money terms has probably dropped off a little bit could be indicative of the fact that the, the bubble is about to burst. Hmm. Well, uh, if anyone is thinking about putting any bets on around that, I would encourage you to not. Um, because uh, bubbles are bubbles are frightening things, and as soon as you think that it might be about to burst, it turns out it could be years and years and years until anything actually happens. Because people will continually try and like buy them out and things like that. 
So uh, I think that you're right. It might is suggesting that at the moment. Uh, I, I still think we'd be a long way off um, ever looking like it was actually going to happen um, in practice. That's true. And, and especially, you know, it's it's weird to talk about the bubble bursting in a year where we've had the Saudi Pro League rearing its head uh, and offering absolutely insane wages and transfer fees. And, you know, maybe they'll look at this and go, well, there's a gap in the market. We're going to launch, I, I disagree. you know, Sa- Saudi TV UK and all of a sudden we'll buy all the rights and et cetera, et cetera. Although that would be uh, another five years away. I actually disagree. I think, um, you know, the fact that the Saudi League is even happening is at least in part... Um, evidence of the fact that they're kind of trying to do it in-house you know they they don't want England to be the biggest um, market for football they want the, the Saudi league to be to be the thing you, you um, might be right but but I, my wider point was that the bubble bursting in English football is it's indicative it's like do you ever hear that um and and you know please forgive me uh, any big economist fans uh, here that I'm getting this wrong but there I think it's a John Maynard Keynes quote where he says something like when America sneezes the world catches a cold uh, which is to say you know when America have a you know so important are America to the global economy that if they have an issue the entire world has an issue um, and and so too I would posit is the issue with the Premier League that the Premier League has got to a point now where so much of global football economics is uh, dictated by how much money the Premier League are spending and how much the Premier League are getting in from their various sponsors that if the Premier League bubble bursts it'll have a massive ripple across the entire football ecosystem oh I mean that that's that's definitely true and, I, and I'm not trying to in any way um, dispute that I think it's more the point that you know we, we've seen countries massively invest in football and then have that cool off um, the most obvious example being China and cool off happened because they literally tried it they tried to do their own national league they tried to put loads of money into it and it didn't work and as a result they got quite disenfranchised with the whole project um you know china investment in football is is down um from from where it was five six years ago and we could well see something similar happen with saudi arabian money or middle eastern money whereby they basically go this has this has limits kind of as, as we're saying um, and, and then they they begin to lose interest um, I don't think we're you know I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow um, I don't think that's going to happen within a year but again the, the, we could be talking about in a few years time how these were the early indicators yeah, look, I, I think we could be in, it's impossible to know what happens in an industry that is so chaotic and there are such, uh, you know, bizarre market forces that spring up out of nowhere. You know, the example of a Saudi that sprang up out of nowhere and is suddenly, at least financially, a major, major player. Um, and there are several other, you know, powers that be that will be interested to see if there's a gap in the market to start throwing their financial weight around. Um so, uh, you know, put a pin in that for, for now um, in terms of whether it means the bubble has definitely burst. It's definitely one to keep an eye on. Back to the pure sort of broadcasting side of things. Uh, I've done a little bit of uh, back of the cigarette packet maths here. Um, 
As I mentioned, Sky Sports will be showing at least 215 games per season with the remaining 52 available games broadcast on TNT Sports, uh, which leaves us uh, with the Premier League showing 380 games per season uh, with around 113 games, uh, which means uh, that if every non-Saturday 3pm game is being broadcast, we'll have about 113 uh, Saturday 3pm games, uh, you know, depending on various reschedulings from things like the Champions League and the Europa League. Um, But around 113 Saturday 3pm games, which means roughly three per game week. Now, I would ask you, Mm. we've talked a lot in the past about the 3pm blackout. I am of the opinion that I think there are good arguments for it and good arguments against it. This is maybe the worst outcome, uh, having only a small number of them, but not having them televised all the same. Um, Largely because I think you know, speaking as someone who loves watching every single game and so wishes to have them all available, but also as someone who likes going to matches and, and watch them in person, 3pm on Saturday is objectively the best time to go and watch a game of football. Um, you know, you can arrive there, you don't have to get up at the, at the crack of dawn like you do for like a 12.30 or or, or some of the Sunday games. Um, if you've been out the night before, you can uh, go down there, meet your friends, have a couple of beers and then watch it at 3pm and it's you're not out too late. You can get home, uh, you know, for tea and then do something with your, with your friends in the evening. So if that is going to be less and less of a thing, and the ones that still exist are not going to be televised anyway, is that not the worst of both worlds? It's it's definitely not the best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's not looking ideal. Um, I think that I'm I'm still I'm still interested to see how it all unfolds because uh, I'm not. I'm not as sold on the idea of the blackout in terms of whether or not, like I I recognize that there should be ways in which fans are encouraged to continue to go to the games. I'm not, I'm not sold on the idea that the 3 PM blackout is or has ever been the way to do it. So I don't know whether or not, for example, that being phased down will be replaced by other um, solutions, which might be a little bit more effective I think, for the most part, Premier League is is pretty well attended. Um, I think the majority of big clubs have over eighty five percent attendance, which is good. So it's high. Um, so it's high, it, higher than that. The average Premier League attendance. I think it's over ninety. But, it's well, it's uh, well over ninety. It's like ninety two to ninety nine or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's excellent. But um, but but the, think... the 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 argument, I mean, not to sort of cut the the argument for the three pm blackout is is very rarely. It's not even really the sort of the the say the Wolves or the Brentfords. It's more the sort of lower pyramid fans who would suggest or the lower pyramid well, that's, clubs. That's where I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly. Um, and for those, the the current system isn't isn't working particularly well because attendance is is not amazing. Um, it, it could definitely be improved. So. You know, we we will see um, whether or not they do decide to bring forward new ideas um, to replace the old ones, if they are indeed deciding to replace the old ones. Well, well, I think that what this uh, this new deal has guaranteed is that there will be the three pm blackout until at least uh, you know twenty thirty uh, or sort of I should say late twenty twenty nine. So so that's locked in. There'll be a, a much smaller proportion of the Saturday three pm blackout, but that will still be a thing until at least uh, late twenty twenty nine. Which I, I can't can't help but feel like is still the worst of both worlds because it's still sort of failing to acknowledge that we live. 
game in a world where the internet exists. So if you really want to watch a Chelsea game, but you live down the road from, say, Leak Town, you're not necessarily going to go because you can just boot up your laptop and watch an illegal stream. Um, so it's not really addressed the problem. And then also just like the lack of 3pm games for match going fans. I mean, I use the example there of not having to get up at the crack of dawn. And, I, you know, in my head, I was thinking about a home game there. But the the same is even more true for away fans because a 3pm game gives you good time to get up somewhere if you're traveling from you know up north to London or vice versa it gives you good time to get up there it gives you good time to get back you're not having to uh you know get ridiculous last trains and god knows those are unreliable enough in this country as it is um so so to have more of these, I mean, there's a big suggestion that this is going to lead to a lot more late Sunday games. Um, so if there are games that kick off, for example, at 8pm on a Sunday, that's not great if you live around the corner from a ground, really. Um, and especially for mm-hmm. sort of, you know, younger fans, if you've got, uh, you know, kids that you're trying to introduce to football and they're, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever, you're not necessarily going to want them out at a, at a football game at 10pm on a Sunday night. And, and one of the things we know about football and, and all sports, if you lose the young fans, you're in a lot of trouble so it really makes me wonder I, I will sort of have to see how these things pan out maybe I'm just being very doom and gloom because that's my nature as a, as a cynical bloke but I feel like this is kind of the worst of both worlds in regard to the Saturday 3pm games we're keeping them but we're reducing them and in order to compensate for that we might be shoving games in really bad time slots elsewhere it, it seems it but then again you know we don't know for example whether or not it's going to come in partnership with a crackdown in trying to stop illegal streams online. And I, I, I just don't I'm, think that's I'm, the thing, though. That, that's like trying to crack down on drugs. You can never really do it. I, I don't know. I I actually would disagree with that. I think it is doable. Um, I, I, I'm not trying to get into the technical aspects of it, but I think that if you were to, during games, for example, start shutting down streams... As sometimes happens these days. They already do that, though, don't they? I, I think it could be done better. Um, I, it could but be, but again, I, think, that's, I think that's like that's this is that's like the ultimate like couch take. You it's know, the couch take. I, I, I don't I, know I, anything about the the technical, you know, feasibility of of how you do it. But I've I've often thought that there must be a a better, more accurate way of doing it. Potentially, and, and look, we're getting really off piste here, but I, you know, I, I kind of like it. Uh, you know, maybe that's something where AI comes in and, and, and empowers that. But I think the the parallel I always oh. think of is the music industry, like the music industry for years, when you had things like LimeWire and Napster uh, and all those sort of places where you could download music online. Uh, and I hope most of our listeners are old enough to remember that. And I'm aging myself for the second time of this episode, if not. Um, but uh, you know, the music industry tore its hair out for ages, going, you know, why are people not buying CDs? Why are people not you know buying these songs on itunes even though we've introduced this new way to get them people are still downloading them illegally online and only then i mean how do the vast majority of people listen to music today you subscribe to a streaming service you've just got to make it easy for people and and go look like cracking down on piracy is never going to work because it just didn't work for the music industry there was like 15 years where they were like we've got to stop people downloading it let's shut down this service let's shut down that service oh they've got a server farm in sweden that'll never work because we have no jurisdiction oh let's do it. and i think it'll just be the same thing with football i think football will be like a dog chasing its tail if it thinks that the way to combat illegal streaming is to chase the pirates because the pirates will just sail away uh the way to do it is to offer <laughs> a better alternative i i do agree with you and I also disagree with you because I think yeah it, it's all about it's all about the experience and ultimately 
as you say, like that is because there are, there are good streaming services for um, music. I think music is potentially an argument that falls down because, you know, it gets a lot of criticism for whether or not it's actually viable for the 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 people who make the music. But I think that it's about the experience of of you know consuming the content. And if, for example, you are constantly having the stream that you watch be shut down, that will have a, a significantly detrimental react like effect on how you enjoy the the the, the thing so I, I, just, uh, but I, I just i just don't like it in, in i understand what you're saying in theory but i think in practice like if i want to watch uh so to to give you an anecdote i you know was away from a tv uh, and couldn't watch it anyway for liverpool 4-3 fulham but all you need to do these days i didn't even search for it is if you open up twitter there'll be something just in your feed if you follow enough football things it'll come up and it'll be someone who's done all the hashtags and it'll go watch live here liverpool versus fulham you can click on it you can watch it it'll get shut down after about 15 minutes but if you're sort of on the move as i was at the time you sort of close it down you open it up again you watch it later it's so accessible that i'm not even looking for it and i can find it and i can find more than one example so i think trying to chase that it's like cutting the heads off the hydra you can do that and exhaust yourself ad infinitum as the music industry tried to but all you're going to end up doing is just wasting your resources and wasting your time which it's it's about it's about creating barriers though and you know you you're never gonna if you if you set out to try and remove 100 of um all you know illegal streams you're obviously not going to succeed but if you get rid of if you spent if you do the 80 20 principle put 20 percent of of the effort in and get rid of 80 percent of it then there will be people who will then find it harder, won't know the Twitter accounts to follow. Like you will get a, a downtick and that could well potentially lead to more people going to local games. Potentially. Uh, I, I don't know that I agree just because I think it, like we live in a world where most people know how to use a smartphone. And obviously, yeah, there are some some fans who are still a bit like, oh, you know, is the, is the FBI going to turn up at my door if I Google streaming site? I'm not going to name here for my own legal reasons uh, in case the FBI come to my door. But, uh, you know, I think, and, <laughs> the, and they will. They will. Uh, but I think the vast majority the of fans... You know, like like the vast majority of fans would happily, and th- that's why they've moved this. They've moved loads more games to being broadcast because I think they they've they've done the weirdest thing, which is like half recognise that's the solution to the problem, but not fully. Yeah, um, it, it it seems it seems um, imperfect as a solution. That, that's definitely true. Um, but you know, you, there's so much money in this now. You gotta you gotta think that there is some logic behind it, even if that logic isn't to help fans' experience. That's certainly true. Well, look, we've stuck on the TV deal for, for a long time. I think it's a really interesting topic uh, and one that could have uh, you know massive ramifications for the game moving forwards. Or perhaps I'm just being a bit of a doom monger. Um, but let's move on. I want to talk briefly about uh, something a bit non-Premier League, not even Championship. Uh, it's League One, uh, for now at least, uh, and almost certainly a <laughs> League Two story next season. Um a protest uh, by the fans of Reading, uh, which got a lot of attention this week. Fans throwing tennis balls on the pitch during the 16th minute, uh, which is, of course, to reference the 16 points they've already had deducted over the past year. Um, as owner Dai Yong this week uh, paid the players, uh, but not the day-to-day staff for the month of November. And it's not for the first time that they've been missing at least a portion of their wages. So all of the uh, footballers who play at the club, who do deserve to get their wages, not saying anything against that, they obviously deserve 
deserve to be paid for their jobs have received their salaries, um, but not, for example, any of the you know administrative staff, anyone who does the catering, anyone who does the security um, on a sort of a permanent basis. So anyone who's sort of day to day there hasn't received their wages. And the reason he's prioritised the players uh, is because if he had not, it would incur yet another deduction uh, if he missed out that payment. And I wanted to talk about this for a couple of reasons. Firstly, and and not foremostly, but the reason it sort of jumped to attention to me was throwing tennis balls on the pitch, just a great form of protest. We see so many different kinds of protests, whether it's holding up banners, whether it's holding up different coloured scarves. Throwing tennis balls really sort of stands out and is also like a really good way to peacefully protest. It's really effective because you can get a good amount of distance on a tennis ball. And even if you like absolutely pelt a player or a referee, it's not going to hurt them. And it also serves to do maximum disruption. Like the entire game had to be stopped. They had to sort of mobilize a lot of staff who are probably not even being paid to clean up the pitch. And it really, really had an effect. Whereas sometimes when you have a, you know, a plane flying a banner or people flying a, you know, scarf or whatever, it, it doesn't have the same effect. So I, I kind of wanted to just sort of doff my cap to, to Reading fans in that first instance. Hmm. I also kind of wanted to highlight it because we've spent a lot of time in recent weeks uh, and, and recent years as well at, at times talking about you know financial fair play and talking about ownership and talking about responsible people being in charge of clubs or club finances. And, and there are a lot of people who might say, well, you know, why does it matter? Let people spend what they want to spend. And Reading are not the only club to have ever gone through this, but it's a great example of you know why we need uh, more robust challenges and more robust tests for the kind of people that are able to take over clubs. Um, Dayong has really sort of sunk the club into misery. Obviously, they got relegated last season from the Championship to League One. They currently sit at the bottom uh, of League One and will almost certainly be in League Two next season. Um, Sponsors of the club have had to step up to pay the day-to-day staff. And the owner, Dayong, his other two clubs that he owned in Belgium and China, which were KSV Rosolare and Beijing Renhe, uh, respectively, have both ceased to exist. So this is, you know, if you're a Reading fan, um, and I know a close friend of yours and uh, a friend of mine is a Reading fan who's uh, quite devastated by by a lot of this, uh, would you say is more numb these days? It's just a horrible thing to subject fans to. And, and this is why we need sort of more stringent rules around exactly who can determine the, the, the fate of a club. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been a it's been a real shame to see the way that Reading have dropped down the leagues. Uh, it's um It's not something you wish on any club. I think, um, and it always always sparks alarm bells and, and concern whenever you know, for example, a double relegation over two seasons happens. Um, and, and interestingly, um, trivia wise, it's not the first time that Reading fans have have come out and protest against a um, a wealthy owner or part owner. Um, I think it was back in the eighties where um, this happened last time, and I, and I believe it was relatively effective. Um, I agree with you. The tennis balls were, was a was a really nice touch. Um, and it also, I think, um, the other part of a good protest is you want to get some good pics from it. It needs to be clippable um, for media, and um, I, I believe it did uh, also achieve that. Um, yeah, it, it's in terms of the rules, they obviously need changing, um, and it's not just about clubs like Reading. It's about you know, uh, I think um, I think a lot of the Premier League owners. At the moment, uh, you know, potentially shouldn't be. Um, but then it's also tricky because we we benefit from it because we get great football that we talk about. Um, so you know, you, you don't want to be hypocritical in in the fact that you gain 
you know, they're, they're great football, and then and then you're but you're criticizing the the money or, or the way that these clubs are owned um, at the same time. But um, when it comes to clubs like Reading and ownerships like Reading, um, it, it's both because not only does it seem like it, you know, really bad owners behaving badly, it's also having a really significant detrimental impact on the club. And I, and I'm I'm guessing that we will continue to see more examples of this across the English football pyramid as the rules around things like financial fair play and the rules around ownership become more stringent. We will start to see more more of these kind of things happening because a lot of the time these clubs are just owned by people who have a lot of free time and a lot of free money. Um, free money, a lot, a lot of disposable income. Um, but yeah, it's it's a real shame. It's a real shame to see, and it's a shame to see for a club that just 10 years ago were in the Premier League. It's it's easy to sort of forget that, that, that Reading have been in that situation, and you look at other clubs like Portsmouth, for example. Was it 10 example, years ago? Just 10 years ago. 15 years ago. Yeah. 10 years ago, they were in the Premier League. They were in the Premier League in 2013? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Wow. There you go. So, so yeah, it's a... Uh, it's it's a it's a message to us all that you know could happen to to just about anyone. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, they're they're doing. Twenty twelve. They've done some work. Technology. They've done some work on on fixing the rules, but again, this is something that if if they're not careful, there will be much more of a call for things like regulators um, to come in and independently manage these markets because it seems to be becoming more frequent i don't know if that's um that's something that we're seeing in numbers but it, the eye test feels like it's it's more regular that we are hearing about maybe they're just getting more press these days but that we're hearing about um you know bad ownership and and that having a really bad impact on clubs i feel like there's been more of the ability to make so I think it is partly more press but I think also because of the general bloating of football across all levels uh, certainly in England I think it's become more easy for someone to be like ah I'm going to buy this club and pump 150 million into them and then I don't have any more money and then my plan after that is I don't know and <laughs> that's when things go completely tits up yeah yeah that's that's probably a, a good way to put it um, it's just not what you want because you know the, the, these these things are institutions. Um, they have a massive impact on their local communities, and they should have the the adequate protection that their their position in society demands. Absolutely. Well, look, if nothing else, uh, the Reading fans have their moxie and their ability to protest incredibly well, uh, exemplified not only by the uh, efficacy of the sort of tennis balls, uh, but also by the slogan. So the name of the protest group is uh, Sell Before We Die, after uh, Die Young, who is the owner. But also the slogan they had for this protest, which was Balls to Die Young. So, uh, Die Young. So, (laughs) fair enough to, uh, to Reading fans. At least they've got that. (laughs) <laughs> and hey you know um as you say could could well become the benchmark for um how to protest effectively could not but but could i think i think there's been a couple of instances of it in the past i don't think this was sort of revolutionary but it was just a really great example of it and certainly really effective so so fair play um 
Let's move into a bit of useless trivia. I've got a bit of a short and a sweet one uh, for you. We are recording uh, at the moment. I think I mentioned it's the 5th of December, uh, Tuesday night. We have just had uh, a couple of games, uh, Wolves versus Burnley, and a absolutely mental uh, Arsenal or Luton versus Arsenal game. Um, the stat I have for you comes fresh off the back of that game, which is that Arsenal, at the time of recording, lead the Premier League in both points one, but also errors leading to goals. <laughs> <laughs> errors leading to goals wow is there any one culprit that that has been been the biggest offender uh, pardon is there any one Arsenal player that has been the, the worst offender uh, I don't know off the top of my head but I would hazard a guess that it's David Raya <laughs> it, could, it could well be uh, I do think um, having watched the, the game that you just mentioned there against Luton there's at least one goal where it felt like it was pretty eminently savable. I think it was Ross Barkley's goal. Mm, yeah, yeah, it absolutely was. Well, maybe a little bit of time to talk about that later. First, onto your use of trivia, and then to uh, an exciting bottom of the table six pointer. There you go. Um, I've got quite a funny story that I was going to tell you last week, but I, I decided to go with, with something else. But um, it's about a game in La Liga, um, which happened on in in late November. I think it was Sunday, the twenty sixth where Real Sociedad took on Sevilla. I don't know if you um, if you came across this game at all. Is this something you... you, you no, I happen? I don't think so. So there's a, um, a pretty hilarious moment um, that happened, which is that um, it, it was quite an important game. can't remember exactly why, but basically um, it, both teams were, were very much trying to, to win or get something from it. And uh, Sociedad were beating Sevilla 2-1. Um, into the the 87th 88th minute um Sevilla of course um now have a couple of players that uh, I'm sure every fan um uh, will who listening to this will be aware of such as um Sergio Ramos and also Jesus Navas and it was the the former um that received a second yellow card um in the 88th minute um which meant he would be then um missing uh, one game um, on a ban and also, you know, Sevilla's potential for coming back into the game and trying to, trying to get a late equaliser or even a winner in extra time was going to be massively impacted. Um, that This sparked, the second yellow card sparked a, a massive protest from the whole team. And um, it went on for several minutes. Um, they kept saying, you know, it's a clean foul. Please just, you've got to look at VAR. You've got to look at VAR. It was a completely clean slide tackle. Please just look at it, look at it, look at it. They pushed the referee so much <laughs> that the referee eventually agreed to go and look at the, the VAR, um, um, the VAR t- TV screen and <laughs> decided, watched, watched it back, decided it was such a bad foul. He rescinded the second yellow card, gave Sergio Ramos a straight red card, which means that he now misses three games instead of one. And also, Jesus Navas was sent off at the same time because he was protesting the decision so much. And just something which, it couldn't have happened to a different guy. Sergio Ramos is just like, such a perfect person for this to have happened to. And I, and I came across this story and I thought, this is hilarious. Not a lot of people necessarily follow La Liga, wanted to share it. Really made me crack up. I'm, I'm so glad you did share as well, because as soon as you started telling the story a bit more, I remember, I think this happened... It must have happened like at 
on a Saturday, or it happened on a on a game that because I was also at a match, and I remember looking at my at my app that I use for sort of scores up, and I saw there were two red cards, and they sort of put them down as the same minute, like sixty seven or whatever it was, and I was like, that's really weird. You don't really see that. I wonder how that happened. Didn't look into it, and now you've told me the story as to why. Uh, what a great <laughs> story. And also, like, if you're going to go to bat for your mate. Like, really? Sergio Ramos? Like, absolutely world-class defender in his day. <laughs> but re- he's the guy, you're going to be like, no, ref, I, I, I put my life on it that it was a clean tackle. You definitely won't send him <laughs> off for you. Sergio Ramos is the guy you're going to do that for? <laughs> if I know my mate and I know my mate, <laughs> he's innocent. Narrator, he did not know his mate. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus Navas presumably has missed the last 10 years of football, or maybe the last 15 years of football, um, and uh, came into bat for the wrong dude. Um, But yeah, honestly, I I hope that we start seeing more of this now with VAR happening, with, um, you know, referees being more willing to to, to go and and look at things. Um, I I would love to see a few more examples of this where they go, okay, you know what? Fine, I will look at it. And then... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like not doing what the what the players wanted him to do. <laughs> so good. Um, moving next into uh, the first of our Premier League games this episode. Uh, we're all the way in and we're only just now talking about some of the actual Premier League football. Uh, Burnley 5, Sheffield United nil. Man oh man, Sheffield United are in trouble. And man oh man, I did not think that Burnley were going to score five goals uh, maybe this season, much less in one game. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... Uh... I think you'd have to have gotten up pretty early for this game to have not caught you by surprise. Um, as you say, Sheffield, uh, just going from bad to badder um, to, to worse. It's looking pretty dire. Burnley, um, with this game, have leapfrogged uh, Sheffield United. And also, quite satisfyingly, um, with this 5-0 uh, win, it is, is of course, a 10-goal um, difference switcheroo. And Burnley now lead Sheffield United by 10 goals goal difference. So they started on minus 28, both of them. Uh, and, and now they are 10 clear. Um, it's... Or, or would yeah. they have... Would one have started on... Would they have started on 23? Uh, that's... That's definitely what happened and not what <laughs> I said. <laughs> that's right. I still it's have definitely... my cigarette packet for maths from earlier, so... No, you know what? It's actually definitely the thing that you said, another thing that I said, <laughs> as, it, as it turns out. Um, yeah, Sheffield United um, conceded in the first minute, um, got a player sent off in the first half, Oli McBurney, um, were conceding goals all the way up to the final 10 minutes. Um, you know, they, they tried making a bunch of changes um, right after the, the halftime um, and they did not do anything. To stem the tide, um, Burnley Burnley looked good. Um, in as much as we can praise them for, uh, I think probably, you know, a, a game in which we should be spending the bulk of the time criticising Sheffield. Something needs to change, uh, and something has changed. Um, the manager's out. Uh, we've got our old old faithful back in, um, and it can only be up, right? 
Well, yeah, I mean, as you say, uh, you know, massive, massive win for Burnley. Um, I mean, it's fantastic to score five goals. Uh, I think we've talked about it a few times when we've talked about teams that have big results against Sheffield United. Are they good or are they just playing Sheffield United? Burnley, of course, playing a 10-man Sheffield United, which is the equivalent of boxing against a child with no arms or legs. Um, so as much as I want to praise them, and they do deserve their, their flowers for, for a good result, um, you're not going to have many oppositions much easier than that this season. Um, but you know what? Fair play, Burnley. We have, yeah, had our first managerial sacking. We wanted her to be, and we thought, well, you know, is it really worth sacking Paul Hackingbottom? Because you know what you're going to get. Uh, it's not going to change much. And even after this game, I chatted to a mate of mine who's a Sheffield United fan, and he went, I don't really see the point of sacking him. But uh, apparently losing 5-0 to bottom of the tail Burnley was egregious enough uh, to see old Paul lose his job. Uh, Hackingbottom, I mean, indeed. It's pretty egregious, is it not? And, uh, you know, to, to get to a point where Burnley are scoring for fun, something's gone wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris Wilder back in, obviously a big fan favourite. Um, the expectations will be quite low for him because uh, the team is not exactly replete with talent. So he'll be sort of trying to steady the ship. And I imagine his brief will be something like, please don't get beaten too badly each week rather than you should stay up. But what do I know? Um, <laughs> first man to do a changing of hands. Hey, let's see what Chris Wilder can do back at the helm. Let's move all the way from the bottom of the table to the top-ish of the table. Is it fair to call it that? Uh, with Manchester City 3, Spurs 3. What a game this was. Yeah, a, a wild ride. Um, a wild ride from start to finish. Um, I, I don't know if we should start with Simon Hooper, the referee, or if we should end with Simon Hooper, the referee. But yet another game where, you know, I've seen new things. I keep seeing new <laughs> new refereeing things happen and, and this felt like another completely abysmal performance but in a in a different way um which at this point we've, we've got to start calling it impressive um because we've seen so many um bad decisions refereeing wise but um yeah it, it's uh it was a very exciting game i thought a couple of players really stood out to me i thought brian hill w- was fantastic um i thought that julian alvarez was very good um, I enjoyed, uh, I thought it was a wicked like, advert for the Premier League. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to have to start talking about City, I think, because this is the third draw that they've had in a row. Um, Spurs are a little bit of a bogey side for them historically over the last few years, but they do seem to be less consistent um, than than normal than they have led us to believe they are uh, for the last few years. And, they always turn on or seem to turn on um, when they need to. But, you know, I think uh, we're going to have to start talking about it, especially because Arsenal have just scored a, a last-minute winner um, and are now, I think, five points five ahead points player, with, uh, of Liverpool, with one yeah. game more played. Yeah, five points um, ahead of Liverpool, six points ahead of City with, with one more played. I, I mean, what, what I would say, is it time to start talking about City? They do this all the time, don't they? I mean, this is exactly what happened last season. City were pretty slow to get off the mark, and then they just get to a point in the season where they go, haha, okay, like we've had enough time, like, you know, playing with our hands tied behind our back to make it a bit more interesting. Let's win 12 in a row. Like, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that Kevin De Bruyne was obviously out. City have been still been playing pretty well without him, but you add a player, like, Kevin De Bruyne is top five players in the world. You add a player 
turn that into any team and they're going to come up another level. And they do just have it in their locker to win 12 in a row, whereas I don't think Arsenal or Liverpool or any other team in this league does. So I think they'll always have that ability. Um, it's three draws in a row, as you say. Um, those draws were against Chelsea, Spurs and Liverpool. Uh, I know Chelsea aren't having the... Well, Chelsea aren't having the hottest season if you're not a top club. They're having a really hot season if you're a good club. Who <laughs> um, plays them. So, you know, <laughs> if you're going to get three draws... Like, the other way you could say it is they haven't picked up a loss against three of the ostensibly the toughest teams to play. Um, and, and that maybe speaks more to her, the expectation we have of Manchester City that we're like, they didn't win all three. Um I did like, um, I do want to talk a bit about Simon Hooper for his, as you mentioned, like the ability to introduce an even newer kind of sort of bafflement about referee decisions. Um, but the thing that really interested me off the bat was Hyung Min Son scoring a goal, an own goal inside about three minutes, which surely has to be the quickest instance of that ever happening. Like Ooh. not, like, like not sure the Premier League, but I'm saying like maybe in world Ah, it's probably happened no, in South America. It's no, probably happened no, in South no. America in like a minute. But like, okay, it's like in top flight English football history, let's say, that's got to be the quickest it's ever happened. Oh, uh, nothing, nothing springs to mind. Um, I, don't, I will have to check Martin Skirtle's uh, lap times, <laughs> his, um, his, his beep test times for, <laughs> for getting up and down the pitch um, a few years ago. I... Yeah, you're right. Obviously, City um, have been missing key players. They have been playing big games, but I think the the way in which they've they've not won them is bad. I agree with you that they do seem to do this every year. Um, but you know, for example, that that game against Chelsea, you know, that was a, an ailing Chelsea side, and, and City City lost their lead three times during that game. They went one 0 up. They went three two up. They went four three up. Every time they let Chelsea back into the game. And I think that basically the, the question that I want to put to you is, well, it's not even necessarily a question that needs answering, but, but an ob- observation that could well come to pass. City do this every year and they get away with it every year. But I believe that there will come a time where they will not be able to get away with it. It's the same thing across a season as Arsenal do. Arsenal love to have during games real significant periods of poor play and then hope that they can come up clutch in the last few minutes. And a lot of the time it works for them. A lot of the time it doesn't. Um, and we saw it quite a few times, such as um, with Southampton at the, the end of last season, where they just leave too much for themselves and can't get it over the line. And I, I think that the league is becoming more competitive again. That seems to be the case. We're seeing not just one club um, competing with City this time, but, but two or three. Um, and you know that there will come a point where City are not able to be as lax as they have been and it could well be that because they've been allowed to be lax and get away with it they're much more susceptible to it yeah it's a fair point I I just maybe I'm just sort of so used to the status quo that I do think like (laughs) it it does feel like they're kind of sort of they're playing against uh, the rest of the league who are sort of on a different setting and they're going, oh, okay, like, it, it's, it's kind of like playing FIFA with your mates and you're way better than all of them because you play it way more than them. So you go, tell you what, for the first half, I'll only play with one hand to give you a bit of a fighting chance. And they go 1-0 up. Or, or you sort of go, I'll play with a one-star team, you play with Real Madrid. And they go 1-0 up and you go, oh, time for me to start trying. And they we win 3-1. And that's what it feels like City do every <laughs> season. Do you, do you know that feeling well, Cameron? Uh, not the winning side, no. 
yeah, I, I feel like they'll come back into it. But that's, that's you know, we can we can discuss whether that or not that's the case when we get a little bit closer to some of the crunch points in the season. I, I want to talk, before we move on, because we've got a lot of other games to, to touch on, um, that Simon Hooper decision, um, you're, of course, referencing uh, his decision to not play advantage while Jack Grealish was sort of threw on goal. He played advantage, the ball went over the top to Jack Grealish, he was threw on goal, he then decided to bring it back, um, to, to which, obviously, all the City players, and, and notably Erling Haaland, uh, were absolutely furious. And, and I think rightfully so, to be fair. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent rightfully so. Um, it was just abjectly bizarre. I, I didn't understand what I was seeing as I watched the game. It it just seemed so against logic that it, it really was as the like after the ball was played, he then blew the whistle. And I'll be honest, I'll be honest. I'm I'm I would say I'm maybe rarer than you are uh, to to you know, dust off my tinfoil hat and pop it on my head. Um, I think you maybe reach for that a little more eagerly than I do um, on average, what? on average o- over the course of the season. I was, I tell you what, I was rooting around in my closet for my tinfoil hat after watching that because it seemed like a really, really obvious example of a referee deciding a game. And I, I don't want to, Add any more fuel to the fire. Uh, I think it's not necessarily helpful or whatever, but this isn't the first time Simon Hooper this season has made a decision that people questioned and that directly led to Spurs getting something from a game. Mm-hmm. Interesting that you've said you're not going to add fuel to the fire and yet you've thrown a big gasoline-soaked log on it right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything that's untoward, but I think he's a Spurs fan. Uh, well, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I thought completely shocking. I, genuinely, genuinely, I, I think, like, does this not need to be addressed? Surely this needs to be looked at. I don't know if you thought the same thing watching this, but I was baffled. I was so confused as to how that happened. You 100%. can't. It, it just. It just. It. A lot of the time, when when referees mess up, you look at it and you go, "I don't think. <laughs> I just think you're an idiot." <laughs> um, and and this was not that. I did not look at that and go, "I think you're an idiot." I looked at that and went, "I think you've done that on purpose." Well. Well, that remains to be seen. Well, it probably doesn't remain to be seen. We'll never know. But it, it's interesting because, you know, I've got no love lost for Manchester City. And, and I think a lot of football fans are in that camp, what with some of the allegations up against them. But in a vacuum, you look at that decision and you look at the decision they had last week against Liverpool with the sort of uh, the goal that got ruled out against them. They would be well within their rights to go, we've had four points taken off us. And I think a lot of the time football fans will say, oh, well, you know, City have had their four points taken off them here. And, you know, Liverpool had their points taken off them against Spurs and Arsenal had their points taken off them. Like it all evens out eventually. I don't like that line of argument. It's one of my least favourite lines of argument that it all evens out in the end because it is literally saying, two wrongs make a right so I, I don't like that I think we shouldn't be going and I think it's part of the reason why these wrongs persist is because everyone sort of complains about their decisions but then is equally quick to launch into laughing at their rival teams when they have bad decisions go against them no one's sort of going oh or the majority rather I should say aren't going oh they're all equally deplorable and so the referees are going well if we've made a mistake this week but it's not against your team you won't care 
yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's definitely true. I mean, I what, what do I what would I say in, in response to that? I feel like I'm very ready for the what I believe to be the upcoming storyline arc, which is not just you know clubs looking to sue clubs because they've been wronged by poor um, officiating and poor um, legislating for rules. But I, I, I want to see PG Mole sued by these clubs because there's going to come upon a point where they're, they're like deciding leagues. They're deciding titles um, with these terrible decisions and continuing to make them almost, almost without prejudice and without retrospection and, and without a care in the world um, is what it seems to be. And so, yeah, I... I would love to see PG Mole get sued. I think it'd be hilarious. I think it'd be brilliant for the game. I literally can't think of a downside um, uh, unless unless it turns out that refereeing is way harder than we all thought and the people that come in to replace him are even worse. Well, that's the problem is that without a waiting, you know, feasible replacement, if you sue PG Mole, maybe you get a payout, but then the next season you've just sort of gone against the brotherhood and you could better believe that your players are going to get carded for every foul and anyone who does like a little foul on you is not going to get carded. Like who would be the, it would have to be like a secret meeting between all the clubs to sort of unite and, and sort of make that decision. But it, it would be a tough one to, to sell. Um, because you would run the risk of just being completely fucked by referees if it came out that you were the one who who, who launched it. It's true, it's true, but it's not. I don't know. I, I don't. I think that you can't really do that in the sense that if PG Mole got sued and then proceeded to massively discriminate against the team that sued them. It would just be so obvious. I don't really know how easy it would be to get away with that, especially with the extra scrutiny that that would bring. Um, I, I might that might be dumb. Maybe that's a maybe that's a wildly honking take, but I just don't know how you get away with that. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, the the world's not a fair place, is it? Um, moving swiftly on, uh, before we move on to our next game, just wanted to quickly <laughs> point out. Um, Postacoglu uh, did his classic thing here where he decided to go toe-to-toe uh, with a with a vastly superior team, uh, play really attacking football, and everyone thought he was going to get absolutely cooked about half an hour in because City were taking him to bits. At the end of the day, uh, obviously with that Jack Grealish, you know, who knows if Jack Grealish would have scored, but with that likely goal ruled out and helping him out, it still didn't blow up completely in his face. So Postacoglu's attacking football still viable, question mark? I think confirmed. I think viability confirmed, yeah. Interesting. Um, well, uh, again, you know, if if we're giving Man City the um, the fair of like, you know, you were missing players. Spurs are missing loads of players, and I think it, it's fun because I almost feel like it's it's rare to be to have like the the process of a manager trying to find different systems that work to be so observable. I feel like normally it's much more, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but maybe maybe it's more like they they go away at the international break and they emerge two weeks later with fresh ideas. Whereas with Spurs, it literally seems to be like a week in, week out thing that we're, we're just witnessing, like the team learn. 
I don't, I don't know if you know what I mean by that. No, no, I do. And, and look, I'll, I'll say this much. It's certainly meant that uh, of like, Spurs have been involved in most of the most entertaining games in the league this season. They're more Chelsea. So, hey, from a perspective of someone who enjoys watching entertaining football, it's uh, not a bad ride. Um, let's there move on. Be- at, the, at the end of the season, we'll be wondering whether or not the best signing was, uh, you know, someone like James Madison or someone like Simon Hooper. Yeah, it's very true. Um, moving on to Liverpool 4-3 Fulham. A huge comeback for Liverpool, but maybe one that has given a couple of headaches to Liverpool fans. We talked last week about Alisson's injury uh, and Kevin Kelleher being the replacement uh, in what we would have thought were, you know, games that were quote-unquote easy enough for him to not be there. He then chucked two over his shoulder almost immediately um, to, to certainly make everyone's pants uh, a little bit wet in the, uh, <laughs> in the Liverpool fandom. Um, they did manage to pull it back largely off the back of a brace from Trent Alexander-Arnold who I'm once again requesting stops being played as a right back and starts being played as a midfielder because good god is he exceptional when he goes forwards good god is he bad at the back it, it, it does seem like one of the more straightforward decisions that, that could be made um, because it, it does really seem as cut and dry as that um, yeah brilliant footballer brilliant goals um, uh, it's it's a fun Liverpool that we're that we're seeing this year. I feel um, in that more than ever, it almost feels like. Do you remember a few years ago where Liverpool were just really chaotic? They had like a centre back partnership of Martin Skirtle and Colo Torre, and anything could happen. And it was like a shoestring Steven Gerrard midfield. And I, I feel like. Was that was that when they were sort of like you can score as like that era where they were like you can score as many goals as you want we'll just score one more so they were like winning loads of games five four and four three that was always that was always their goal yeah um, and yeah I, I think uh, it feels like we're getting a little bit of a revival of that whereby Klopp has in selling all of these players that made up the spine of his team decided that instead of like a consistent attacking football, he's choosing chaos instead. Mm, it does seem that way for, for for sure. Well, I mean, an interesting game. They got the all all three points, and if they can ride out these three games without um, you know, without Allison, without dropping too many points, then they'll certainly be happy. Um, Bournemouth two, Aston Villa two. We said last week that this would be a fascinating game. Aston Villa with a chance, in theory, uh, to go top of the league. Um, obviously, mm. other games depending did not, and have sort of Aston Villa are kind of like. I, I, the, the rich man's Chelsea, I guess, if that makes sense, in that they're doing the same thing where they're like they're playing well in a lot of good games, and then they've dropped points. Like they lost in Nottingham Forest a couple of weeks ago. They dropped points to Bournemouth, who for their money um, are doing really, really well. We talked again last week about how Iriola might be uh, starting to make things work, and, and certainly had another game here where Villa not an easy team to beat this season, uh, or, or even get a result against, which is what they did, not beat them. Um, yeah, really fascinating game and uh, told us a bit more about both sides. Uh, I think Aston Villa maybe will have to get used to this uh, This team's really preparing for games against them like a cup final. And Bournemouth, hey, they might be ones to watch out for if they're coming up on your uh, your Premier League team's match calendar because they are maybe not the rollovers that we think they are. Well, yeah, I mean, Bournemouth are... Are they kind of like the... They're, they're kind of like the poor man's Aston Villa. Um, because they... Um... <laughs> so, so, so Aston Villa are the rich man's Chelsea, Bournemouth are the poor man's Aston Villa. So Bournemouth are Chelsea? Bournemouth are Chelsea confirmed, yeah. I right, mean, how okay. many points? How many points are between them currently? Uh, that's 
it's 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 uh it's only two wins. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know Bournemouth have flattered to deceive at times, and they love to lose games, um, like getting beaten by Wolves two one at home and getting players sent off, losing three 0 to Everton, etc. But then they also love to put teams like Newcastle to the sword. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, another really fun, um, another, another really fun side that. I mean, to be honest, I was talking about how Liverpool are a bit more chaotic. Kind of feels like the whole league is a bit more chaotic. Kind of feels like um, kind of anything could happen. Um, not just in terms of who's going to win it, but in terms of game per game, it feels like it's ne- it's not confirmed. You know, it, it's really it's really unsure as to what will happen. And I think that's that's probably the product of of what we've been bemoaning a little bit, which is this massive amount of teams that have been losing consistently and, and this massive amount of teams kind of from 20 to 12th place who are all in and around the same amount of points. But it's just led to a, a, a large portion of the league all really needing points and just throwing themselves at games. It absolutely has. No, you, you are right. Right, finally, finishing us off with a, a pair of games uh, featuring the same team, Arsenal uh, 2-1 Wolves uh, and Luton 3-4 Arsenal. Um, Arsenal are basically the ultimate min-max team. I want to say this season, but it's mm-hmm. kind of been true for a long time, but maybe it's the max part has come out more because they're, they're a lot better than they have been in a long while. They're so funny. These, these last two games, I should include the, the third one they had in the middle of the week against uh, Lons, where they absolutely obliterated them. They have this ability even within games, not even sort of game to game, within games to sort of like either obliterate teams or completely fold. And it's like just they can have both those yeah. settings. It's like Arteta has like a big switch in his jacket pocket and sometimes he has it, the slider switch to like good football. He only gets and, 10 minutes per game. <laughs> no, not even that. Like sometimes it just jostles around in his pocket and switches to bad football and he doesn't realise because at, at once... And again, in the same game, I will watch Arsenal, the Wolves game being a great example, and go, man, this team is really, really special. This team could do great things. And then, like, 10 minutes later in that same game, I'll be like, are this team 10th? Are this team going to be, like, getting any of the European positions? Maybe the Conference League, if they're lucky? And, and I don't understand it. Um, it's it's kind of like Arsenal are kind of like, um, like, like Lionel Messi, but if Lionel Messi didn't have Barcelona around him, it's like, oh, wow, okay, you've... You've scored two brilliant goals. You're now walking around the pitch. Okay. <laughs> kind of, actually. I wasn't really with you for the start of that metaphor, but I'm with you now. Um, but yeah, in this, you know, the Wolves game obviously came out of the blocks massively and, and then sort of capitulated later on and, and were maybe lucky to, to not get punished further. Zinchenko, I mean, we just talked about Trent. Zinchenko is kind of like the poor man's Trent Alexander-Arnold. So key to so much of what Arsenal do <laughs> moving forwards. Uh, but casual as he like defensively. Put him in that left eight. Try him out there. And, and you know, especially with Durian Timber coming back, get him out of left back because he will always let you down defensively but is equally quite good going forwards. And then the uh, the 3-4 against Luton, really reminiscent again of some of the games they had last season, the, the Bournemouth ones particularly, uh, really last-minute win against a team that, you know, exciting for the fans and, and a brilliant sort of legendary win by the nature of it being the last kick of the game, but not something you should have left to the last minute to do. They should have probably dispatched Luton quite comfortably. And, and again, it comes back to that thing that we always talk about with teams, uh, you know, like Arsenal and the position they're in right now. Is this just scraping by or is that the hallmark of this sort of cliche of that's what champions do. They grind out a win even when they've played horrendously. 
it's always both, Cam. It, it, it's always both. <laughs> um, I, yeah, uh, you, you said most of it, except for the fact that Luton played very well uh, and probably deserved to get something from this game. I think um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording and we both said that neither one of us was imagining that there was going to be that seventh goal in there. I, I definitely thought it was going to end 3-3. Just because, you know, the, the the 10 minutes before the final whistle, just quite flat. Um, you know, Arsenal kept trying, but they did, they weren't getting consistent spells of pressure. Um, Luton, if every time that Arsenal got a ball into the box, Luton were also able to, um, every other time, dispossess an Arsenal player in, in the middle of the pitch and, and try and convert it into um, a counter-attack. And yeah, hey, props to Arsenal, um, to be fair to them winning it but they can't do it over the course of a season you can't keep expecting to be able to pull out these clutch moments didn't work for them last year um it's probably not going to work from this year no matter how much min maxing you you managed to get done over the summer you do say that you do say that arsenal can't continue to do this every single uh you know every single week and i i do broadly agree with that although i did see one thing that in this season alone they've had a 97th minute winner at luton an 89th minute winner at brentford an 84th minute equalizer at chelsea an 86th minute winner versus city and a 96th and 101st minute winners at manchester united so you know, they've won nine points from the last five minutes so far this season, which is 20% of all the possible points they could have won from the first 15 games. Maybe they can do it every week. I feel like, look, I hear you, Cam, but it feels quite quite counterproductive. It's not for, sustainable, is it? Well, for me to be to be being like, it's working for now, but it, it won't always work. And you're like, yeah, but it's working for now. It's like, okay, so, yes. So <laughs> but it's working like, for now so well, Rupert. It's like, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think we're on the same page as working for now. Um, I, I personally, hey, um, you know, I'll, I'll present match of the day in my boxes if I'm wrong. But um, I just don't think they, they're going to be able to do that with regularity. And I think there will come times where they get caught out for it. And it's not just going to be um, against teams like Southampton, it's also going to be against teams like City and Liverpool and, and Spurs where you can't afford to just mess about. You will just lose games if if you do what they have done at times this season. Look, that's certainly true. And we saw it happen, you know, chiefly at that point last season where things all started to slip away. I just happen to be of the opinion that Declan Rice gets plus 10 to all stats during the last 15 seconds of a game. So that's that. Um, I mean, uh, Martin Odegaard, I think, is surely uh, the, the, the number one clutch player on that team. Oh, it's either him or Declan Rice. Declan Rice had quite a few in his like limited time already. But uh, he, he scored a couple of goals, to be fair to him. Um, you know, a, a new facet to the game. Mm, indeed perhaps perhaps well look uh that's all we have time for this week rupert great to talk to you as always cam thank you very much and thank you everyone for listening we'll catch you next time cheers guys bye armchair analyst was recorded remotely by cameron mcdonald and rupert meadows the album artwork was provided by our good friend amshill